Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are returning to the hot topic of the Iran nuclear deal and what will happen now that Donald Trump has decided to withdraw American support for the deal and seems to be taking the hardest possible line that he could. To help me make sense of this and to work out what Europe should do, I'm joined by Ellie Geremeyer, who's a senior policy fellow on ECFR's MENA programme, is our lead analyst on Iran, and has recently written a very interesting piece on our website, which is subtitled, After Trump's Iran Decision, Time for Europe to Step Up. So, Ellie, should we just start with, with where we're at now? What has Trump decided to do? How much do we know about um, his decision-making process and what it means for the ability of Europeans and others to keep the Iran nuclear deal alive? Sure. So, as an explainer, um, on Tuesday of this week, um, so a few days in advance of the 12th of May deadline, um, Trump actually caught um, a lot of people by surprise with an early announcement uh, regarding the Iran nuclear deal. And again, uh, I think surprised people with a very hard exit uh, or what you would also call a, a kind of hard violation of the nuclear deal um, with respect to US obligations by essentially saying that not only is the United States fully exiting the nuclear deal, but they are also going to be um, they are also going to be reimposing all of the sanctions that were eased under the nuclear deal, and with a promise to actually introduce the most extensive sanctions me- mechanism um, on Iran going forward, um, and so. This, some people had been thinking in advance of his decision that um, after the visit of President Macron, it was clear that President Trump was going to backtrack from the nuclear deal, given the signals that we had from the French president after his visit. Uh, but I think that the degree and the extent to which he decided to pull the plug on, on U.S. participation um, was quite surprising. In a way, actually, this, this has... Um, kind of made things more clear-cut and and from a European position made things more clear because it's no longer the US keeping the deal in limbo phase or uh, keeping this unpredictability around whether the US is in or out. Um, The US president has clearly acted on his promise to renege on US commitments in the deal and that's, that's where we are today. So we've seen pictures on the television of flags being burnt in in the Iranian parliament. Um, But so far, the Iranian government has been relatively um, measured in its response. Can you say a bit more about how Tehran is reacting and what the debate within Iranian political circles is? So from the the government side, uh, there was clearly... um, a very well-coordinated and quick response with a televised message uh, by President Rouhani, um, you know, within half an hour of Trump's um, announcement, um, to essentially say that Iran is going to be patient for a matter of weeks um, while negotiations um, are underway between 
um, Iran and other parties to the deal, and particularly here, the Europeans. Um, Iran's supreme leader also followed up uh, with a message to say that they, you know, Iran um, is going to see what, whether the deal can continue um, to satisfy Iran's economic and security interests. Um, and as part of that, they're really looking at um, the Europeans here and what kind of a package that can be provided by them um, that is enough to keep them going on their side of the nuclear deal. So that's the official government line. But obviously, in the same way that the nuclear deal was subject to very heated debate um, inside of the U.S., um, there were also opposing views on, on whether Iran should have signed the deal in the first place or not inside Iran. And the government's opposition groups, uh, which are mostly the ultra-conservatives, or as, as we call them sometimes in the West, the hardliners, um, were always opposed to these negotiations and, and kind of uh, took the poison pill, shall we say, in 2015 when, when the deal was signed. And so in Parliament, um, those very figures that opposed the deal actually set fire not just the American flag, but also to the text of the nuclear deal. Um, now, obviously, this was a, a small group uh, that did this, uh, but we've seen um, this kind of backlash um, from Iranian um, very conservative uh, news outlets to basically uh, have a big I told you so um, in their headlines um, to say that the government made a huge mistake in, in, in trusting America and that they've been vindicated um, that you really can't cut a deal with the United States. So what do you think that from the perspective of President Rouhani and Zarif and the other people who've uh, put a lot of their political authority on the line by signing up to the JCPOA, the, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which is how the Iran nuclear deal was, it was called. Um, what would they need in order to prevent um, things escalating and, uh, you know, the, the hardliners reasserting control over the nuclear dossier? Well, I think we're going to see a very stepped up um, engagement between the E3 governments who are parties to this deal, the EU and also Iran. I believe that there is a... Uh, going to be a foreign ministerial meeting between them all um, early next week, possibly on Monday. Um, and I think that there's going to be a lot of discussions about what Europe can deliver um, given the extent of U.S. secondary sanctions. So these are sanctions that affect non-U.S. companies. So effectively, European companies that are going to be engaged in business with Iran, um, to what extent... These can still continue um, to provide Iran at least some limited economic benefits in return for, for the Iranian side for continuing to fulfill its, um, its restraints and constraints on its nuclear program. Um, now, these are going to, I think, be very difficult and challenging conversations to have uh, precisely because President Trump and, and his administration, uh, at least this week in their messaging with, with, um, with briefings, have indicated that they are going to lead a, a kind of hard implementation and enforcement of these U.S. secondary sanctions. And so the crux of it is going to be whether there is any way um, for the Europeans 
to try and negotiate with the United States a, a kind of amicable separation uh, whereby the U.S. is allowed to exit the deal but allows the other parties um, to this deal to carry on, uh, providing at least some limited economic package to Iran in return. And do you think that's at all realistic, given the uh, total imbalance of, of trade ties between European, you know, between European companies with the US and those with Iran? I mean, if you look at the entire uh, turnover of German trade with Iran, which I think was the highest, it was only two billion um, uh, euros in 2016. And that was a, after a big kind of rise. Um, and that compares with, um, you know, with hundreds of billions um, to with the U.S. No, I mean, no one is arguing that um, the, the, the volumes of trade are comparable. But I think particularly something that in the discourse in Washington um, is is lost is that from the European side, this nuclear arrangement, this nuclear deal is really not about the economic factors um, that weighs much more heavily on Iran's mind. For the Europeans, this is more a security arrangement, both to meet their concerns regarding Iran's nuclear program and its possible expansion into a weaponized program um, so that the deal is able to limit and control that. And secondly, it's about um, essentially preventing a, a military confrontation uh, on Iran. No, no, but what I meant is simply the the for any business that is contemplating the idea of secondary sanctions how could you possibly make it worth taking the risk of dealing with iran if you threaten to get shut out of uh, not just the us but any dealings with dollars no sure i mean i'm just trying to give this explainer in, in, in to to flesh out why the Europeans need to make this critical decision. So they need to essentially come to a foreign policy security-based decision about what extent and how far they're willing to go to salvage this nuclear deal, which will require uh, coming to some sort of an arrangement with the United States on US secondary sanctions that in, in ways that ring-fence their companies. Now, from a company perspective, and you know, over the last year, I've been speaking to uh, a number of European multinationals that have interests in both the United States and Iran. The majority of them um, w would very, very carefully assess um, how these sanctions are actually going to be rolled out. So it's all going to be about whether there can be, for example, exemptions or carve-outs made on sector-specific areas, for example, on the energy, oil and gas industries, or aviation, or automotives, um, in ways that make the legal conditions clear for European companies to continue engaging business with Iran. But actually, in my view, um, for, for a number of European companies that already have moved into Iran, the, the, sanctions, uh, the secondary sanctions issue is not so much a direct threat to their own business, but the main problem is the issue of banking and financing, um, which is, is creating a lot of problems given the extent to which European commercial banks are uh, integrated into the US market. So for, for the big European companies, the bigger question is how do they secure financing uh, and, and payment banking uh, lines with Iran to allow this trade to go through? Okay, so... <clears throat> 
if we sort of look at uh, what's going on now, I mean, we talked in uh, a podcast quite recently with, with, with you and Nasser Hadian and Eli Goldenberg about um, what could be done to try and influence America and to try and stop Trump from from doing this deal. And part of the logic there was about taking seriously uh, the concerns that Trump were, had raised about the deal and trying to flank it with a kind of wider package. Um, the experience of the last couple of days shows that um, it didn't work particularly well, this strategy of engagement. <laughs> there wasn't much attention paid to European interests and needs in the way that Trump uh, handled his decision and certainly the way that he announced it. Um, what do you think Europeans should do now? I mean, in your paper, you talk about adopting a different approach, which is sort of seeing Trump uh, as somebody who understands the, the sort of language of power and, and therefore that Europeans should be much more robust and focus on, on um, shaping his decision making rather than um, uh, trying to uh, appeal to his goodwill. Uh, but what, what do you think in concrete terms the key steps should be? Yeah, sure. And I, and I would just um, kind of stress on the outline that, you know, for months there has been a lot of discussion about whether this so-called, what people have termed the shiny object, uh, which is this bigger, better, broader deal on Iran, um, could in some ways distract President Trump or, or keep him interested in maintaining the nuclear deal in place and kind of adding to it. Um, I'd always been skeptic, but I thought it was worth trying. And it was, and I think the Europeans made a, a genuine and sincere attempt um, to do that. But I think that some of our negotiating tactics um, have have. I think, failed to essentially speak, as you say, the language of power to President Trump in ways that could be convincing. Um, and so going forward, um, I think that in, in the negotiations with the United States, um, I think that the Europeans need to be much more robust and firm. So here are, are a couple of concrete ideas um, based on this. So the, the European leaders are going to be meeting next week. Um, and uh, we already know and, and uh, you know, there's been lots of reports that this, um, their response on, on Trump's decision to, to exit the nuclear deal is going to be a big topic of discussion in, in Sofia. So part of this is going to have to be a unanimous um, and public um, essentially separation with the United States on its decision to, to exit the deal. I mean, already we've had a, a unanimous um, EU28 statement uh, of regret regarding the decision. Um, but I think, I think we can go a bit more in, in, our, in our language regarding the fact that, um, you know, this, this approach of trying to essentially um, bring Europeans on board through through um, through weaponization of U.S. sanctions, essentially, is not something that the Europeans are willing to um, accept. Um, particularly given, I think, the overall um, climate right now in transatlantic relations over issues of trade. Um, and secondly, you know, we've we've still had um, some of the E three countries. Hinting that it's possible, not even hinting, but, you know, President Macron um, also um, stated that he's still interested in, in working with the United States on this broader framework of Iran policy. Now, I think we need to park that idea for now. Um, we need to focus on actually ensuring that 
Iran's nuclear program remains restricted and constrained and that uh, we, we keep Tehran on board to this agreement. And only if we can find a way to deliver on this is it going to actually be possible to build on this broader deal um, with Iran, which, by the way, at some point is going to require Iranian buy-in uh, to be workable. And so in our discussions with the United States, my suggestion has been that we, we park this, uh, this kind of add-on agreement or supplemental agreement until and unless the Trump administration essentially agrees to minimize or limit how it's going to enforce its U.S. Uh, secondary sanctions against European companies that are going to be doing business with Iran in order to fulfill European side of the commitments under the nuclear deal. Um, and I think third, um, you know, a really important thing is, and I've been warning about this, in the process of wooing President Trump over the last few months, uh, I think we have risked our, our influence with Tehran uh, because of a real communication um, gap uh, that has been emerging, uh, with Iran essentially kept outside of these negotiations between the U.S. and, and the E3, uh, with very limited um, with very limited insight into uh, the mechanics of those, and so I think that we need to shore up some confidence in Tehran that when we say uh, Europe is going to stay committed to this deal, that we're serious, both from a political stance, but also in terms of willing to take action on that front. So I think it's a real positive that there's going to be a foreign ministerial meeting uh, quite immediately following this this decision. And I think that, you know, as, as part of these meetings, there needs to be some really creative thinking done, uh, you know, first and foremost, about how Europe can um, essentially limit the damage done to Iranian oil exports um, it, as the process of um, essentially the reimposition of U.S. secondary sanctions come into force because the, the, the United States Treasury has already issued a, uh, essentially an, um, a, a statement to say that all non-U.S. companies uh, by 4th of November that are dealing in Iran's um, energy sector need to start winding down their business. Um, and so that means that all the European companies that are importing Iranian oil are, are going to have to start winding down their, their, their trade with Iran in the coming months unless there can be some sort of a package and, and, and legal certainty put forward here uh, by the Europeans as to their ability to continue uh, going forward. And how could that work? Yeah, so that takes me on to my next point, which is essentially within the European Union, we need to start formulating uh, essentially clear legal conditions um, for some strategic sectors of trade with Iran. And as I mentioned earlier, I think we need to focus on um, the energy sector, aviation and automotive industries and some, uh, some areas of infrastructure, um, such as transport, because there are a lot of European companies that have already started on, on this front. And by the way, these deals in these areas are also seen as the kind of uh, parameters of success for the nuclear deal and its ongoing survival. So I think being able to find ways to actually allow some of these deals to, to keep alive, at least, uh, and keep them ticking um, is important. So as the first thing, I think the Europeans need to try and um, come to this so-called amicable separation with the United States. Um, and 
we have previously had um, had examples where you, where U.S. sanctions policy has conflicted with European policy, and Europeans have been successful in getting exemptions and waivers and carve outs um, from the U.S. administration. Uh, for both their companies, but also countries, and then also across uh, across sectors. Now, I think this, uh, um, given the critical aspect uh, that affects all European company, uh, countries and companies, this needs to be a very much a pan-European effort um, that's led by the E3A and the European Union. Critically, the European Union needs to be involved in this to ensure that there is some sort of a you know, cross-sectorial uh, exemption being given, uh, particularly on, as I said, on the kind of ensuring that oil exports uh, from Iran can continue. Um, now, of course, I think the US, um, given some of the statements that we've had from John Bolton this week, um, may may turn us down. Uh, and that's very possible because... How do, you, how do you think Europeans... I mean, that's obviously going to be his instinct, isn't it? Because why would you do what you've just done if... Um if you were going to allow Europeans to carry on trading with Iran through the back door. So how can Europeans be more persuasive when they have that conversation with their American counterparts? Are there things that they can threaten America with countermeasures against um, American companies? Um, There's been talk about uh, compensation funds for, for, for European companies. I mean, what are the, the different ways of strengthening European leverage? Okay, so I think first and foremost, uh, which is the kind of good cop mentality, I think we need to say that there will be no European, um, that, or that there will be very limited European cooperation with the United States on wider Iran policy. Um, that's particularly on the regional issues and and in terms of uh, ballistic missiles issues, um, that there will be no kind of continued US E3 talks on this issue unless that there there are firm guarantees regarding um, sanctions enforcement. Um, Then I think uh, you can move into the kind of uh, more tougher position afterwards, which is to say um, if the United States is is going to essentially make Europe bleed, uh, because it's not going to follow your uh, U.S. foreign policy on this issue, I think in the in the European Union we need to start very serious consultation uh, about countermeasures. And and there are two areas which there is precedent for uh, from the 1990s that we've discussed on this podcast before regarding how the U.S. was enforcing its sanctions on Iran, Libya, and Cuba in the 1990s under the Clinton administration. We have two precedents there. One is the the EU blocking regulation, which has uh, kind of been simmering in in discussions over the past few months as a viable option to to revive um, and amend to reflect uh, existing uh, degree of uh, economic realities um, regarding how European companies are integrated in the United States. Uh, That's one option. And we know that in the past, European officials have even publicly alluded to this being viable. And I think that, um, you know, for, for, for some countries and for some companies, um, the EU blocking regulation would be a good thing. Uh, for others, it would put them in a very, very difficult position of essentially getting penalized twice uh, by both the United States Treasury and also um, the European uh, the European uh, regulators, because what this blocking regulation essentially says is um, 
European companies in European jurisdiction are have to follow um, European laws, and if they start to implement uh, U.S. sanctions policy. Um, they will be subject to essentially oversight and 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 investigation and fines in by the European um, Commission. And so this isn't a great ideal solution for a lot of the multinationals um, that are going to essentially say, well, we'll just stop all of our business with Iran. But I think for some others, um, and we've been discussing this with companies, they say, well. The very fact that the blocking regulation comes back gives us a, a political sign from high above in governments uh, that um, you know that these that we should be adhering to European laws on this issue, and it also gives us a layer of legal justification in our discussions with the United States when if the U.S. Treasury uh, investigates um, their actions in in regarding Iran, uh, it gives these companies a legal justification to say well. Under our own laws and in our jurisdiction, uh, we have to abide by European laws, and we're not allowed to abide by U.S. secondary sanctions. So I think this is this is one idea that needs to be explored. But in my opinion, it's probably going to have more political impact in terms of boosting European leverage in negotiations with the United States than have any real huge practical impact of pushing companies um, to, to do business with Iran. A second area that we've been looking at, and again, there is precedent for, is this idea of a clawback mechanism. So essentially, again, in the 1990s, where, where European companies were being fined by um, US regulators, um, the, some European countries and governments um, created uh, kind of compensation funds where these European companies could go back and claw back the fines that they'd paid out in the US. And into that pool of compensation funds, uh, and again, it was quite ad hoc um, at the time, um, some American companies operating in Europe started to become um, fined um, by, by European regulators uh, to essentially top up that compensation fund. Now, again, neither, of the, neither the EU blocking regulation or this clawback mechanism had to really be implemented uh, too much because it gave, it gave enough political leverage to the Europeans. Ellie, because that sounds pretty exciting, you know, quite a big and bold thing to do. So let's just talk through how that would work because presumably the fines, I mean, some of the fines might be exacted by the by the US Treasury, um, but other fines of European um, commercial entities have come from, you know, the New York State Court and things like that. So if, if they basically say went after Airbus, um, and uh, fine them uh, billions of, of euros for, for uh, breaking American sanctions, um, the, US, the, the, the court of New York, for example, then what, a, a European court, I mean, who would it be? The European Court of Justice would what, go after Boeing and fine them the same amount of money and put it in a compensation fund and give it back to, to Airbus. I mean, I think that they're knowing uh, knowing Europe pretty well. That that the legal mechanisms of this all would have to be uh, very finely um, finely tuned out. Um, but essentially, I mean, and again, this is this is um, 
this is quite an extreme measure, but it also has precedent. Um, and it doesn't, um, it doesn't necessarily, you don't necessarily have to go into the enforcement phase for it to have um, the kind of mutual deterrence impact. So essentially, what the Europeans would be saying uh, to the United States is, look, we have this option to go ahead and set this up. If you start to weaponize your sanctions against us, we're going to have to find a way um, to, to ring fence our companies and protect them. And, and part of that could include uh, exactly this method. If, if your courts start to go after our companies uh, for, for what is legitimate, um, we, we will also perhaps accelerate some of the some of the investigations that are underway, for example, against U.S. tech companies that are already under investigation <laughs> in Europe. I mean, the, 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 the fact is that a lot of these cases um, end up being um, uh, end up being settled uh, outside of court anyway, Mark. So it's it's about how how vigorously um, Europe wants to enforce it. And I think as part of that, it will be mirroring what the US policy on this would be. Um, but I think that the, the, the key um, part of this is that the very political consultations on this being a viable option creates that kind of political leverage in negotiations with the United States to say to the Americans, let's avoid getting to this very messy um, um, trade um, potential trade conflict on these issues for our companies, and let's try and settle this uh, through a much more clear-cut um, route of exemptions and and waivers. Um, and I think I think we have a better chance of convincing the Americans that this is this is in their interest and in our interest uh, by having some gun and some teeth to, to our argument by saying that there are viable alternatives that we could pursue if the United States doesn't um, uh, go down this path. But I also need to add to this, this is only one component of it. Um, the other component of what Europe has to do, which frankly it would have had to start doing whether the US was in the deal or out the deal, was to look at how it's going to tackle the the banking and financial hurdles um, that have already very much plagued the implementation of the nuclear deal um, to allow um, for at least uh, at, at the beginning um, some temporary connections um, between um, the Iranian central bank and, and some um, European central banks at, at government level. Because come 4th of November... If the U.S. fully implements its U.S. secondary sanctions, uh, this will also impact basically the majority of Iran's banks. And that means it's going to be a, a real nightmare for any European company to be paid for its services or to transfer money in and out of the country. And so the Europeans also need to come up with some very creative solutions in how they tackle this banking problem because most commercial banks in Europe um, which have a large presence in the United States, a large exposure to the U.S. dollar, will not be willing to clear these payments uh, with Iran. And so some of the ideas that um, at least um, have been explored by some countries is this idea of export credit 
um, uh, export credit lines and to allow for uh, for payments uh, to facilitate trade and investment with Iran. Uh, and these, for now, have been country by country. So, for example, Italy, France. Um, Denmark, Austria have been setting these up. But one of the ideas that we, we were exploring is whether you can actually pool these resources together to make a bigger pot, uh, whereby um, obviously companies from these countries get the head start on these, but you, you give kind of more, um, you share the risk between, uh, between a coalition of European um, countries on this front. Um, and the second idea that I, that I mentioned was this connecting the central banks between different European countries uh, with the Central Bank of Iran um, to, to allow for direct payments, um, which, which in some cases in Europe will not need to touch the US market. For some countries, they will. So that will be much more difficult. But for other countries, this might be more possible. So um, can you explain that? Well, I think that we're going to have the next month, at least, um, of really um, stepped up discussions between uh, the Europeans and Iran, but also between the Europeans and other parties to the deal, because let's not forget Russia and China are also parties to this agreement. Um, the Chinese have uh, quite a large economic stake in Iran, particularly in its oil market, and the Russians are obviously... Um, have security cooperation with Iran in the region. So they are both um, quite key influences on Tehran. And I think it would be to our advantage here to to try and see if we can coordinate with the with the Russians and the and the Chinese, putting aside our differences on other issues to try and Michael Master, German Foreign Minister, where, um, I, he's just on his way to to Moscow at the moment. Uh, I can announce from here in Berlin. Anyway, ah. carry on. Well, there you go. Well, I mean, I think this is a positive because you know, Mark, during all of the nuclear talks, despite all the differences between um, Europeans and the Russians and the Chinese on various issues that were happening at the time, they were able to work together to try and uh, convince and press Iran uh, to sign the nuclear deal. And I think that, again, there is a viable option for them to work together to influence Iran, that it's in its interest to stick to the nuclear deal. So I think we're going to see a lot of shuttle diplomacy coming up uh, between these, these set of countries. And secondly, I think another thing that we should be really watching out for is um, the escalation that's now taking place in Syria between Iran and Israel is, I think, on the radars of a lot of European governments at the moment. Uh, and rightly so. Uh, this week, we've had also um, some heated skirmishes happening in the Golan Heights of Syria. And I think I, as, as a different track with Iran, um, the, the Europeans have, have stepped up, particularly in this E4 dynamic, which includes uh, Italy. Um, they, are, they are having discussions on regional issues with Iran, which is a real uh, positive thing. And I think this needs to be um, urgently accelerated uh, to ensure that there is some sort of a um, de-escalation mechanism in place, um, particularly in Syria, but also in Yemen. Uh, because let's face it, right now the United States is not interested in that. It's not a, it's not a de-escalating um, actor. Um, and the only other actor that every regional power seems to be talking to at the moment is Russia. Um, and I think it's in our interest uh, as a European bloc uh, to have some uh, some stepped up political leadership on that front um, to ensure that the the facts on the ground uh, preserve our security interests as well. Okay, well, these are all pretty interesting topics. We should 
look at maybe in a separate podcast um the, the looking at how you can get around the the extraterritorial reach of american sanctions and american foreign policy and and reclaim some sovereignty on on foreign policy issues um but uh maybe we can end just by thinking about what are the you know if we look forward over the next few weeks um what are the key milestones going to be well i think that we're going to have the next month at least um of really um stepped up discussions between uh, the europeans and iran but also between the europeans and other parties to the deal because let's not forget russia and china are also parties to this agreement um the chinese have uh, quite a large economic stake in iran particularly in its oil market and the russians are obviously um have security cooperation with Iran in the region so they are both um quite key influences on Tehran and i think it would be to our advantage here to to try and see if we can coordinate with the with the russians and the and the chinese putting aside our differences on other issues to try and Michael Mast the german foreign minister um i he's just on his way to to moscow at the moment uh, i can announce from here in berlin Ah, Well, there you go. Well, I mean, I think this is a positive because, you know, Mark, during all of the nuclear talks, despite all the differences between um, Europeans and the Russians and the Chinese on various issues that were happening at the time, they were able to work together to try and uh, convince and press Iran uh, to sign the nuclear deal. And I think that, again, there is a viable option for them to work together to influence Iran, that it's in its interest to stick to the nuclear deal. So I think we're going to see a lot of shuttle diplomacy coming up uh, between these, these set of countries. And secondly, I think another thing that we should be really watching out for is um, the escalation that's now taking place in Syria between Iran and Israel is, I think, on the radars of a lot of European governments at the moment. Uh, and rightly so. Uh, this week, we've had also um, some heated skirmishes happening in the Golan Heights of Syria. And I think I, as as a different track with Iran, um, the, the Europeans have, have stepped up, particularly in this E4 dynamic, which includes uh, Italy. Um, they are They are having discussions on regional issues with Iran, which is a real uh, positive thing. And I think this needs to be um, urgently accelerated uh, to ensure that there is some sort of a um, de-escalation mechanism in place, um, particularly in Syria, but also in Yemen. Uh, because let's face it, right now the United States is not interested in that. It's not a, it's not a de-escalating um, actor. Um, and the only other actor that every regional power seems to be talking to at the moment is Russia. Um, and I think it's in our interest uh, as a European bloc uh, to have some uh, some stepped up political leadership on that front um, to ensure that the the facts on the ground uh, preserve our security interests as well. Okay, well, thanks for talking to me at a moment which I think is going to be uh, historically pretty important in the future of the transatlantic relationship, and um, it, it marks probably the biggest crisis since Suez um, across the Atlantic, I would say. Anyway, we'll see how this issue develops. I'm sure we'll be coming back to it in many more podcasts. But um, in the meantime, I would urge you to read Ellie's piece on After Trump, Time for Europe to Step Up, which is on our website at www.ecfr.eu. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please make sure you let your friends and 
family and other acquaintances know about it by tweeting about it, writing about it on your Facebook page or ours, but above all, going to the ratings and reviews page on whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast and giving us a rating and a great rating, I hope, and a, and a review. Um, but for now, from Ellie Garamaya, myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenbrosch and our editor is Katharina Botel-Atinaro. Mm-hmm.